Welcome to the Alternative Design Podcast, where we empower creatives to rethink space and how it's designed. I'm your host, Kaylin Reed, a Metro Detroiter, a former interior designer turned brand ambassador, and I'm inspired by the forward-thinking concepts found in the margins of our design community. Join us as we go deeper than the mainstream conversations buzzing around the industry and present an alternative way to think about how we can design for a better human experience. Is there life on Mars? David Bowie isn't the only one asking. Architect Alfredo Minos and his colleague Miguel Serreta believe there will be, and it will be very soon. As designers, we encounter challenges or constraints on every new project. Sometimes it feels like new day, new problem, right? But what if I told you that those limitations could unlock some of the greatest solutions and that self-imposing them could leverage our imaginations in ways we've never thought possible? Today, we're going to go beyond the current exploration of Mars and instead unveil the first potential settlement on the Red Planet called Nua. As a top 10 finalist in the Mars City State Design Competition hosted by the Mars Society, Alfredo, Miguel, and their team at Sonet have brought to life what has only been up until now an imaginative dream. You'll hear about what life could be like on Mars and even more exciting, how it will be designed. In addition, we've taken our learnings from our last episode and are bringing you our first ever docudramapod, where you will be ushered into the future. Via an immersive experience, we'll be following an architect's launch into space, traveling to Nua for the very first time. You'll want to buckle up, we're just about to launch. This is episode five, Waking Up on Mars. July 8th, 2077. Hello and welcome to the launch of Mission Ares Wave 36. This is entry one of our digital journal series sponsored by the Mars Society. My name is Mason Campbell, an aerospace architect with Sonet. I'll be bringing you along for the journey of observing work and life integration on Nua, the first settlement on Mars. My role in this mission is overseeing the phasing and construction of the settlement's second city, Marineris, as the project manager. Our first two launch dates were scratched due to weather, but we've been given the green light from Houston to launch. So this will be our first and last update from Earth. Next time you hear from us, we will be mid-flight aboard Sterling 4 en route to Mars. We start something called Sonnet, which is a network of professionals and 
researchers all our professional activities and our research is related with uh, the idea of how a settlement outside of the earth can be and also how to make it sustainable like 100 sustainable so we start gathering people around people like architects engineers scientists people from mining technologies and and we start just discussing how how would that be As Miguel mentioned, Sonet is made up of all types of disciplines that all have a focus or specialty in the space industry. And in the midst of the pandemic shutdown, they stumble onto something to help them pass the time. The Mars City-State Design Competition. We're not going to hear from internationally known architect and owner of Abibu Studio, Alfredo Minos. So Mars Society was asking for a permanent settlement of a million people. So when we analyze the challenges that we were facing on Mars, we realized that it was critical to create a settlement that was self-sufficient, which means that we did not need resources from Earth, which means that we needed to get all the materials or almost all the materials from Mars and transform them accordingly so the city could be scalable and could be economical. As a designer, you cannot design without constraints. And you cannot really design without information that could be also very technical, right? So what we face sometimes in the industry is that we don't have the access to the highest talent of technical or scientific knowledge, especially in a case like here. And one of the beautiful things of Sonnet is that, as Mikel was saying, we have backgrounds that are very diverse and experts in those fields. So this international team of scientists, engineers, and architects overcame language and cultural barriers to provide a solution that combined design and science in a way that made the city of Nua an actually feasible proposal. But that was thanks to the design constraints that shaped the project. Alfredo mentioned that we can't design without them. Have you ever tried to brainstorm for ideas at the start of a new project? You keep telling yourself that to think out of the box, you need to free yourself from creativity confining limits and imagine that anything is possible. But then you sit there for hours, staring at a blank notebook. You can't get started. Too many choices and options begin to overwhelm you and cause creative paralysis. This is where constraints can focus, guide, and give you the start you need, especially when those constraints are super abstract and force you to deconstruct what you know about solving problems. There has been in the past interesting solutions, especially visually, on alternatives for living on Mars. But then when you really go in depth about the technical aspects, there were weak spots. And what we wanted to, to do uh, in Sonnet was how we can bring all the expertise of science and design together. And we believe that in NUWA, we have been able to do that because of the way that collaboration happened. It was probably one of the key aspects of the innovation associated with the designs and the solutions in NUWA. One of the solutions that came from that collaboration was how the building components would arrive on the planet. According to Alfredo's earlier statement, they don't, which provides a very big challenge. It would be nearly impossible to bring all of the materials necessary on a rocket and launch that into space, purely from a weight limit standpoint. And while the International Space Station can receive resources that can be shuttled from Earth and astronauts can head home after a six-month shift, this is not a luxury that Martian pioneers will have. And here's why. 
if you imagine the sun in the middle and then Mars in one side of the orbit and the Earth in the other side, they are very far away because they have the sun in between and they can have like 500 million kilometers. And you cannot just start your trip in that specific moment because you are far away and you would need a lot more energy. So you do exactly the opposite. You start your trip when Mars and the Earth are closer when they are exactly in the same side. And it happens every 26 months. So every 26 months, there's a window opportunity that opens and you've got like two or three months where you can send your spacecrafts and then it closes again. And then it will take between 250 and 300 days. So it's around eight months to get there, which is a lot. If we think, oh man, you have to be eight months inside a spacecraft. February 23rd, 2078. This is entry 242 in our journal series. At this point, I'm fighting some anxiety and occasional depression. I was told it was pretty normal for this stage in the flight journey. I've been doing my best to complete my two-hour workouts. We have to do them daily to prevent any atrophy of bone or muscle mass. But I just haven't been feeling very motivated. The crew is feeling a bit homesick, especially for the food. MREs come nowhere near a good filet. But we hear there are some pretty interesting meal choices on Nua. In a few days, I'll have to start brushing up on my studies of liquid metal catalyst converters to be able to transform carbon dioxide into steel for the structural framing on Marineris. We're really excited to finally be making our descent soon and begin work on the new city. One of the main problems when you are traveling into space is that you completely change your conditions, the environment, so it's gravity. We evolved as animals on Earth to be in, in 1G, so everything in our body, we don't realize it because we are here, but everything in our body is completely designed for that. Super fast science lesson, but what Miguel is referring to here as G has some significance to the difference between Mars and Earth. So G-force is the constant invisible pull of gravity that you feel every day, and 1G is what keeps your feet on the ground here on Earth. But that really great feeling of your stomach being in your throat when you drive a race car, travel on a plane, or ride a roller coaster, yeah, you can thank G-forces for that. So when you lose this G, when you are, for example, in microgravity in space, you, you can feel like, oh yeah, that's very nice, I'm just floating I am flying around and it looks amazing. But then your body says, come on. Uh, for example, your heart is designed to, to push blood and to fight against gravity. So suddenly your heart is pushing harder than needed. And then, for example, your eyes, your eyes start to change the shape and then you start having vision problems. So all your body starts to, to, to feel it. Many of you might be asking, why Mars? Wouldn't a settlement on the moon be closer, easier? I mean, we've at least been there before. One of the aspects that is important for the strategy that we were talking before about ensuring that the city is self-sufficient is to transform the resources locally into materials that we can use not only for construction, but also for the medicines that we will need for a permanent settlement, the food, etc. So one of the most important aspects is uh, carbon. 
And we can, for example, from the architectural point of view, steel will be essential. But in order to obtain steel, we basically process the CO2 with water. So we do need a lot of access to water along other minerals to be able to ensure that the strategy of self-sufficiency is uh, scalable. On the moon, those resources are much more limited. So NET has come under fire with some criticism from fellow colleagues that would say, why would we prioritize going to Mars over fixing our own planet that's riddled with climate change issues? A lot of people are asking us when we are talking about NUA, many comments are criticizing the ideas behind NUA. And some of that criticism is saying, well, why do we focus on creating a settlement on Mars when we have so many problems here on Earth? And it's true, we have so many problems on Earth that we need to solve. And what I would like to say to all those colleagues, designers, as you probably are very well familiar with, innovation is not a linear process. So at least from what we have seen is that sometimes the most innovative solutions comes when we are forced to think out of the box. Said differently, sometimes the most innovative design solutions can materialize from alternative perspectives and new ways of thinking, like designing for another planet or creating a masterpiece out of Starbucks cups. This is exactly what commercial artist Phil Hansen did. He's worked on a variety of TV and internet campaigns with clients that include the Grammys, Skype, Diesel, and Arby's. In his TED Talk titled The Power of Constraints, he describes how during art school, he developed a hand tremor and thought his career was over. Phil left art school, but a few years later was inspired by a neurologist to embrace the shake. This led him to a new style incorporating the shaky lines he couldn't help but make. He then started to purposefully impose constraints on himself and his art, like drawing on cups or painting with karate moves. This led him to international success. So when we are looking at the problem linearly and we see, okay, we have a problem on earth about climate change. How do we solve it? We are used to understand the problem in a context, but we are not looking at the context out of that context, out of that box. So the solutions could be interesting. But at the same time, if we are forced or we are free to let go the, the entire framework and look at how we could solve a sustainable, self-sufficient city on Mars, there are some of those ideas that we would not have thought otherwise. And some of those ideas are indeed useful for Earth. Some of those ideas include technologies and advancements that we couldn't live without today, like our cell phones. The photos you take with your phone to post to Instagram is courtesy of the team at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who tried to fit a small enough camera onto a spacecraft in the 1990s. Other inventions directly related to the design industry, like home insulation and LED lights, were all a direct result of our space travel missions. Remember, the Apollo 11 mission was met with similar criticism in the 1960s. We were in the middle of a national crisis then too, the Cold War. But John F. Kennedy bravely responded to those concerns. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon.
We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. So we're implementing some of the solutions that we discovered, and some of them could be very easily implemented on Earth. So the beautiful part about the challenges that we face when creating a self-sufficient city on Mars is that that forced us to think in a way that we would not think on Earth and give us solutions because of being forced to be out of the box that can directly be implemented on Earth. March 10th, 2078. There's few words to describe the feeling of being thrust into outer space at 15 times the speed of sound. We experienced the brutality of a supersonic retropulsion as we descended on the red planet. With white knuckles, the crew all looked at each other in disbelief. We made it. We made it to Mars. The first few days at NUA have been extraordinary, and I think I'm becoming well-adjusted as a Martian. <laughs> Can I say that now? On the first day, we toured the life support systems on the top of Cliff Tepemensa to ensure that we had enough oxygen stores for our journey to the project site. I cannot begin to tell you how amazing it was to have a perfectly cooked whitefish as my first meal on Mars. The crew has settled into our residential quarters, which we have all of the comforts of home except the recycle reminder signs. They're really big on that here. We'll be heading to Marineris in about a week after some time to adjust and do a few project briefs. We're told there's a possibility of a sandstorm coming, but we believe if it does hit, it'll be long after we arrive in Marineris. I'll check back in from the rover. Inclusion is always positive for innovation. We thought it was important to communicate that the intention of creating a settlement on Mars was very inclusive of cultures and uh, backgrounds. We in Sonet, we were mainly European or American. We had a decent amount of diversity between uh, male and female, but there was not a lot of Asian representation. And we thought, obviously, uh, the Asian culture is so, so important in, in today's world. So we wanted to be inclusive of the way of understanding life in their culture into our proposal, despite, unfortunately, we did not have a lot of representation. So we thought it was interesting concept to bring uh, the mythology of the Chinese culture into the name. So then we went back to cosmology and to the creation of universe. And uh, we got to know that Nuwa was a goddess that basically created humans. The Chinese goddess Nuwa is most well known for her role in the creation of humans and repairing the four pillars that held up the sky. She's credited for protecting mankind from peril and restoring balance to the earth. But... Miguel has a different view. I have my own interpretation. <laughs> I had the feeling that also the city itself is doing the same that this goddess did. Because 
The, the environment in Mars is so harsh that you need a lot of protection, but not from the spiritual way, but for material. You need something to protect you from radiation, from an atmosphere that, where you cannot breathe. And, and, and that's what the city is doing. So the city is mm-hmm. protecting and it's acting like this goddess that is giving you everything you need to survive. So we decided to propose the a, a permanent settlement in five different cities. Nuwa being the capital. So every city has an approx of 250,000 people. And Nuwa is in Tempemensa, which is in the North Hemisphere. Indeed, all of them are nearby to each other. So a few of these neighboring cities to Nuwa that make up the settlement include Fuxi, Abelos, Marineris, and Ascreas. I know. Try saying that five times. But only one that is in the north, which is basically to mine the, the ice and the water from the pole. But again, we have five cities that are together protecting themselves. So that goes to what Mikel was saying. It's not only in the city that the, the, the city is designed and planned uh, to protect the citizens, but also they rely on other cities to protect themselves and to be able to have the materials and the resources that one city alone will not be able to, to get. But even with an inclusive solution that puts collaboration at the forefront of the operation, there's still a lot of challenges to solve for. One of them is that radiation is very high. So basically anyone that is exposed directly to the sky will be potentially in the short term developing cancer and it will be deathful. So we need to be protecting from the sun radiation and the cosmic radiation. So basically have things on top of our heads. That could be thick material. It could be whatever we can think of to be able to protect ourselves. The other challenge that we have on Mars is that architecture has to solve the inner pressure, which is indeed one of the concepts that are more challenging for architects. Here on Earth, the nightmare for an architect is that the building collapses, that it falls. But on Mars, as Mikel said before, we have one third of the gravity. So the problem of the structures falling is not that much of an issue. The problem is the opposite. Buildings will explode. You heard that correctly. The buildings will explode if the pressure is not balanced or absorbed somehow by the structural material. As humans, we require a certain amount of atmospheric pressure and oxygen concentration to survive. But if we design the settlements on Mars to that earthly standard, the outdoor environment on Mars is at an atmospheric pressure of around zero. That's a problem. But we're not only dealing with a pressure problem. Alfredo explained that there's also a temperature issue. Imagine taking a bowl of hot soup outside, in Antarctica. That soup will be gazpacho in about three minutes. Similarly, heat will escape from the structure since Mars is incredibly cold. This episode is sponsored by Poppin, the new way to work happy. Poppin's modern modular furniture collection is always in stock and ready to ship, allowing you total flexibility to meet tight deadlines. The Poppin Pod, an office phone booth solution, and Poppin Spaces, a system of freestanding walls, can be delivered in under 10 business days. Explore their endlessly adaptable lounge systems, patent-pending adjustable high desks, which are designed to be assembled in two minutes, completely without tools, and more. With forward-thinking furniture designed for flexibility, Poppin is here to help everyone, everywhere, start working happy.
how do we solve that? Well, if we go underground, we solve most of those problems, especially if in a rock. Why? Because we, if we are in a rock, the pressure from inside of the buildings or the spaces that we live in is absorbed by the rock. If we are on the surface, the thermal losses will be very high. But if we are in a rock, it's similar to here on Earth. If you are on a rock, the, the mass is high. Therefore, it maintains the temperature, right? So that's a fantastic solution. But then we don't have light, which is depressing and not very exciting for a long-term settlement. The way we did it is to invert it. We just rotated 90 degrees. And then we have a vertical city. We go to a cliff. We penetrate the cliff with holes. It's basically like an ant house where you live inside the cliff, but then we are able to provide light indirectly by holes on the side of the cliff. And with that strategy, we are able to solve most of the big challenges of a permanent settlement on Mars while still being able to bring one of the critical aspects for the emotional and well-being of humans, which is light. Vertical cities are an interesting topic, not just for the future of Mars, but for communities close to home as well. Many designers speculate that being forced to construct upward, creating multi-use buildings will have a positive impact on the environment and solve for overpopulation issues. A lot of our horizontal landscape is pretty well utilized at this point, so it makes sense to change directions and consider doing life differently. Some say that people won't really need to leave the building structure, given their work, home, shopping, and outdoor facilities could all be placed in the same skyscraper. Basically, the inner parts of the city is different depending on where we are. They are basically a net of three-dimensional tunnels that go as deep as 150 meters depth inside the, the cliff. And they accommodate the normal activities that we'll need on a day-to-day basis. So basically, if you live inside the cliff, you don't really need to live on a day-to-day basis because it's organized on what we are calling macro building, which accommodates for 4,440 people and it's a self-sustained building. Again, it's, it's not really a building because it's basically tunnels, but conceptually, it operates as a building. And it's similar to a mixed-use super skyscraper here where you have all the activities that you need inside the building. Okay, great. So Starbucks will be there. But then we also have at the lower part of the cliff is what we are calling the valley. We have areas that are larger and they are basically domes that have large canopies on top to protect from the radiation. And they are larger, they are transparent, so we can see the horizon and the landscape on Mars. And that's where we have activities that require bigger spaces that cannot be accommodated in a 10-meter diameter tunnels, like parks, universities, auditoriums. We have art domes. We have facilities that are for the community to, to interact. Conceptually, the life on Mars is similar to how we would live on Earth on a co-living, co-working model. While it seems that there are spaces for everything, even schools and parks, it feels like you would miss the native biophilia we're surrounded with on a daily basis here on Earth. We have what we are calling the green domes and are areas where we develop landscape spaces. Some of them are by bringing some of the nature that we have on Earth and creating the the right environment for that nature to grow and thrive. And other spaces are what we are calling Martian Green Dome, which is for experimentation of developing nature that will be native from Mars. So now that we have a pretty good understanding of what the vertical city on Mars might look like and how various aspects of psychological wellness and educational development will be accommodated for, 
Let's discuss some more of the basic needs and how they will be met. So yeah, that's how you are going to live inside this cliff. But then to survive, the city needs to provide very basic things. And, and then we need to create what we call the life support system. On top of the cliff where Nua will be embedded, there's a flat mesa where the system will be located. The Earth naturally gives us a life support system, but it won't be so easy on Mars. In order to solve the more basic human needs outside of shelter, like food, water, and energy, the design team had to explore a closed ecological system for life support. You can start trying what we call the closed system, which means, okay, I need oxygen, but I also need food. So if you don't want to be just consuming resources in, in a crazy way, you need to recycle, you need to reuse everything, and you need to interconnect things. For example, if we think about food, most of the food will be based on crops and also microalgae, because both of them together, they give you a lot of nutrients, but they are also very important to produce oxygen. But then we would have also a little bit of cellular meat. You know that there are people trying to produce meat on the laboratory. And then, for example, mushrooms. We could have fish, that would be possible. So there are interconnections between them because the fish can be fed by the microalgae. So in the end, you can create a system where you have food, but part of this food is creating the oxygen. And, and then power, that's very important. Like Miguel mentioned, in closed systems, everything is connected under a unified material closure, and this allows for precious life-giving resources to be contained and completely reused by means of cycles. A good example of this is aquaponics. Plants are suspended over an aquarium, forming a symbiotic relationship between multiple species and organisms. The fish eat the bacteria and microalgae found in the tank, but in turn, the waste from the fish provides essential nutrients for the plants to thrive providing an ecological balance. Here is a good example of how we can understand a concrete solution that we can learn from solving problems on Mars and how we can apply it on Earth. The life support systems experts were analyzing the amount of area that we will need in NUA to provide all the food required for humans. So the amount of area required for the food for cultivation, etc., was around 1,200 square foot per person. Now let's look at Earth. On Earth, the amount of area associated with crop and farming for animals that we end up eating is 60,000 square foot. We keep using technologies that are centuries old instead of using hydroponics, for example, which is the technology that we are using on Mars, which is already very advanced then we can actually implement some of those technologies and ideas here on Earth. So there's a lot of opportunities as designers and scientists to look back and say, okay, how can we make the technology that we have available ready and start implementing things here on Earth? Even though we are going to need like less space on Earth, we, we, we actually we need a lot of these resources. And to produce all this stuff, if we just put it in power terms, we calculate that we will need 37 kilowatts per person, okay? How are we going to produce these 37 kilowatts per person for a million people? So the main source of power here would be solar power. And then, of course, the problem is that on Mars, it's way more difficult because Mars is away from the sun compared to Earth. So the efficiency of the solar panels and everything is less. So you get more energy from the sun when you are on Earth than on Mars. 
but we were able to be sure that we were giving all this energy needed for this city, mainly based on solar energy. But there is an issue on Mars, which is, okay, if you rely on solar energy, it can be enough for some time, also for years, but then there is something on Mars which can give you big, big, big issues, which is sandstorms. March 25th, 2078. It's been a while since our last update. We got about halfway to Marineris when complete darkness descended. We were caught in the sandstorm. It's so different than how I've seen it portrayed in movies. It's not so much like a hurricane, but more like a gentle, almost, snow. It was a stunningly cold moment when we realized that our full trust needed to be on the AI driving our rover because we couldn't see anything. After a lot of discussion on whether we should just try to drive the rover ourselves or let this machine hopefully take us back to Nua, we made the call. There wasn't enough oxygen to risk human error. It took us three days to make it back to the capital city. But power is at 20% right now, with every resource being cautiously considered, and food is being rationed. We need to hunker down for a while, and I'll update when I can. Mars, you have sandstorms, and they can be global, so the whole planet, the whole atmosphere of the planet gets absolutely full of sand. And actually, that's an issue that we already had, because the first rovers that we sent, these beautiful rovers that that they go roaming around uh, Mars, normally they relied on solar panels, and they had this issue. The last one we lost, it was during a sandstorm, so it, it stopped working because you don't get enough sun if all the atmosphere is covered by dust and sun. You just, the, num, the, the percentage of energy that you are getting can be around 10% of the total. So, I mean, you cannot survive. So it means that we have to have this backup based on nuclear power. After more than 14 years driving across the surface of Mars, the NASA rover Opportunity fell silent after a raging sandstorm that happened nearly eight months ago. It was declared dead this past February as it was unable to recharge due to the lack of sun because it relied solely on solar power. As NASA reflects and will most likely fine-tune future rover energy resources, let's take a moment to reflect as creatives on what might have worked in the past but isn't working any longer. We may not be able to predict every sandstorm or pandemic that causes us to totally pivot, but we can take a look at the new canvas in front of us as we move forward. Maybe we take the opportunity to embrace the shake like Phil did and look at what new constraints the world is giving us to design something completely new with. 
I mean, the numbers are clear. And, and that's one of the beautiful things of this exercise. When we thought about resources, power, uh, all, all these concepts, oxygen were, we start looking at what we need, what can we get, and we start iterating it. And, and in the end, it, it just matched. But it was amazing that, that when everything was just, okay, so it's feasible. April 7th, 2078. We're now back to 100% operating capacity thanks to our nuclear power. While the sandstorm isn't quite over yet, we feel safer knowing that we can survive on the concentrators. We've obviously postponed construction on Marineris until the storm had passed, but in the meantime, I'm experiencing the amazing innovations Nua has to offer. The sense of community here is unlike anything I've ever seen. It's so different than the self-motivating, independent lifestyle back home. Everyone looks out for each other. The success of one is the success of many. It didn't take me long to realize how hostile space can be, but humanity's up for the challenge. Again, living on Mars is such a, a challenging atmosphere and a scenario that we are basing the life at the planet with a, a strong collaboration between the community and living as a community as a group is something we envision critical for the survival of the settlement. Living on Mars is not going to be a retirement plan. It's not going to be a holiday. It's going to be extremely hard, not only because it will require a lot of work to keep those robotics and those technologies that we'll have operating, but also because it's a very harsh environment. So it will be a beautiful experience. The city will be impressive and obviously it will be something that it's impossible to imagine here on Earth. But the risks associated with your own safety and the challenges of living in a very harsh environment are there. Tickets for your one-way trip to Mars with travel and living accommodations included is estimated to be around $300,000. The idea is you can sell your house wherever you are living. And then with this money, you get this trip to Mars, you get an accommodation to stay there, but you also get like some like stocks, like you're a shareholder of the city. So how far in the future is it to make NUA a reality? Are there any next steps being done? The, the beautiful part is that this is just the beginning and there is still a lot of opportunities ahead for the industry of space community to be able to continue developing solutions and improving the design. So we're talking about a 30-year plan. There's still a lot of more work to do on prototyping on Earth, developing the designs, working with key partners and investors and groups that have the resources and the capacity to actually take some of those ideas and make them a reality in the years to come on Mars. So we could have a city built on Mars by around 2054. That's insane to think about. But the point of becoming an interplanetary species doesn't mean we neglect the planet we currently reside on, but instead use this design constraint of building a self-sufficient city on Mars as a catalyst for change here on Earth. Here on Earth, we transform our environment to our will. But on Mars, we are forced to transform ourselves to accommodate to the environment. And that thing that we can learn a lot from living on Mars in that direction, how we can learn to merge with our environment and, and to be part of it instead of 
transforming it to our rational thinking. Going to Mars could unlock some of the greatest solutions and innovations we've ever seen. Just like going to the moon brought major technological advancements. It may seem counterintuitive, but using self-imposed constraints to push the limits of your creativity can be rewarding, especially the ones that force you to rethink the entire problem. Like how to build an entire ecological system on another planet in order to survive. But if we can challenge our traditional way of thinking and break free from the familiar structures of our process, we can provide solutions before our users even recognize the problem. And that's what we want, right? To give two-day shipping before the world knows it even needs it? To create a masterpiece out of matches, candles, or your footprints, even when the steadiness of your hand is limited. Building on Mars will certainly be a challenge and not without its hardships, but we're staring at the opportunity to not only design for a better world here on Earth, but for the universe. This episode is brought to you by Kimball International. Thanks so much to Alfredo Minos and Miguel Sereda for chatting with us today. Also, thanks to Poppin for being our show sponsor. For more information, check out our show notes and don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the Alternative Design Podcast. Thanks for listening.